Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Jeff, for bringing that call to grace for us this time. These are certainly important and special series of Lenten services that, uh, as we share together, as the Lent continues to move forward. This time I will invite uh, Mark Denlinger to come forward to read our scripture from uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, and found on page 784 in the Pew Bible, also on the screen. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my hand in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Thank you, Mark. Let's pray together. Thank you, O God, for this wonderful opportunity to share together around your word. We pray that your spirit would apply this word to our own lives in this Lenten season. We ask, O God, that there would be new truths, that we would be transformed, even as you say, your word comes into our hearts and changes us from the inside out. Thank you, O God. Through Christ we pray. Amen. You can come home again. Home is the place where we feel at home. Many times when guests come into our homes, we might tell them, make yourself at home. It is the place of special belonging where we are connected with intimate relationships. In other words, home is the place where we are at home. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, representing all of humanity, and they were placed in a garden that was their home. And this was a unique and a very special place for Adam and Eve. But sin messed up God's plan, and then they were driven from the garden. They were expelled from the garden. They could no longer be in their home. And God placed a flashing, flaming sword that flashed back and forth to keep them out of their home, to keep them out of the garden. So Adam and Eve were unable to return home. Now later, God called as special people the children of Israel. And scripture says numerous times, I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
These special people were a covenant people, a people that God had a special relationship, a people that where God was asking and demanded obedience as part of the covenant. And we'll talk more about that later. The children of Israel were insistent on having a king so that they could be like the other nations. The other nations had kings who could fight their battles. And as the children of Israel looked around, they wanted to be just like the other nations. And even though the prophet Samuel warned them that they should not have a king, they were insisting that indeed they wanted a king. But their king proved to be a liability just as God had warned them through the prophet. And so the nation was divided, divided with ten tribes to the north, which became known as the nation of Israel, or the northern kingdom. And then the two tribes of Judah was known as the southern kingdom, and their capital was the city of Jerusalem. And these later kings of Judah were caught then in a web of world politics. And these kings busied themselves, busied themselves with revolts, political maneuverings, and alliances. And the people of Judah found themselves squeezed, squeezed between the powerful nations, the nations of Egypt on the east and Babylon on the west. And as the armies of the nations marched back and forth, they trampled through Judah, the land of Judah. And so it was on this scene, on this scene, that God sent Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet, who was a prophet to the nations, not only to the nation of Judah, but to the other nations. And so God sent him to, and had prophecies for the nations of Egypt, Babylon, and Edom, and Moab. Now, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, and he shared openly about his feelings and his emotions as he carried out the Lord's commands. And he was rejected by the other prophets and by the kings whom he contacted on the Lord's behalf. And he complained about his life. He complained about the ministry that God had given to him. In fact, God came to him why he was very much a youth. And so he complained about this this task that God had for him to do. Yet, in the midst of all his complaints, in the midst of all his struggles, Jeremiah faithfully carried out what God was asking him to do and faithfully gave the message, God's message, to the kings and to the people. Rarely, Commentator uh, Elmer Martin says, rarely has there been a man so singularly pitted against the whole world. The people of his home city plotted his assassination. The general populace opposed him, mocking him for his gloomy message 
on a sunny day, end quote. So, in the year 587 before the Common Era, BCE, Jerusalem, this beloved city, was burned and the walls were destroyed and all the people of means were carried off in the second deportation, were carried off to Babylon. So it was only the poor people, only the people who did not own anything, who were left in the city of Jerusalem and left to tend the vineyards and the fields in the surrounding area in the land of Judah. So the people of Judah, the people of Judah in, who were deported to Babylon found themselves a long, long way from home. And they were a long way from the special relationship that God had given to them and which God called them. And they were a long way from the promised land, the land that was their land that God had given to them and that they were so looking forward to. But God was not through with them. God had promised them to give them a hope and to give them a future. And in that 70 years, God would bring them back. God was at work, even in the midst of these difficult struggles, God was at work in his God's intentions. God was at work, we might say, in the mess that was there. And the Lord was inviting the people not only to return home to the land, but also to return home to God. God would be merciful to them. The Lord pleaded through the prophet in Jeremiah 4.3, plow up the hard ground of your hearts. Do not waste your good seed among thorns. Jeremiah 4.14, O Jerusalem, cleanse your heart that you may be saved. And so those who responded, those who responded to the Lord, confessed their sins to God, similar to what David did in Psalm 51, which we'll talk more about in a little bit. And they said, in Jeremiah 14.20, Lord, we confess our wickedness and that of our ancestors too. We all have sinned against you. We already had some reflection on Psalm 51. This is David, King David's prayer to to God after his adultery with Bathsheba. And after the prophet Nathan confronts him, David then finally confesses his sin of adultery and also murder with these words when he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And notice that his sin was not only against another person, but not only against society, and not only against the nation where he was king, but David is saying, I sinned against the Lord, and it was against the Lord. So as he comes in repentance, as he confesses his sin and is repentant, He experiences the grace 
and he experiences the mercy of God. Nathan the prophet says to him, Now the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. But he does experience the consequences of the sin, in that the child who was conceived by the adulterous affair that David would experience the death of that infant. In 2 Samuel 11, David was obsessed, we might say. He was obsessed with covering up his sin, covering up his affair, covering up the murder of Uriah, which he, David, as a king, engineered in an attempt to cover up. But now here in this psalm, David openly confesses that he has sinned against God. He openly confesses and admits that. Our sinning may be against ourselves, it may be against our neighbors, but it is also always against God. Even as Joseph, another Old Testament story, Joseph says to Potiphar's wife in in Genesis 39, he says, it would be a great sin against God. And David recognized that the first step to return home, the first step in coming back to God, the first step in returning home is the confession of sin. So God promises that the people will return to their homeland once again. God promises that the people would return to him. But prophet Jeremiah saw even more. And the prophet envisioned a new covenant, a new covenant at work in the hearts and the lives of God's people. That their hearts would be changed, their hearts would be transformed. And Jeremiah, this passage that we're looking at this morning, this is the only place that the words new covenant, the only place the words new covenant is found in all the 39 books of the Old Testament, is right here. And it is through this passage that we get the term the New Testament, meaning new covenant. This is also the longest Old Testament passage that is quoted in the New Testament. And so it's quoted in its entirety as the writer to the Hebrews in discussing the new covenant the writer to the Hebrews reaches back and he brings this passage from Jeremiah and this is what he says about the new covenant in Hebrews 8, 7 to 12. Now the former covenant, the old covenant we might say, the the earlier covenant at Mount Sinai that God had made with the children of Israel was broken, it was voided, it was dissolved, not by God but by the people the action of the people. Jeremiah 11.10, they have returned to the sins of their ancestors. They have refused to listen to me and are worshiping other gods. Israel and Judah have both broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. So notice that God, through the prophet Jeremiah, 
is not only talking to Judah, but also the prophet says, both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant that they made with the ancestors. In the Sinai covenant, demands were placed on those who accepted the covenant. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, so you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. So failure to obey the covenant brought curses. And obedience to the covenant, to obedience brought certain special blessings. But we might say that the children of Israel demonstrated a persistent failure to live up to the stipulations of this Sinai covenant. And as a result of that, a new covenant was needed. They couldn't live up, they couldn't do, they couldn't follow the Sinai covenant. And yet, though God loved the people, like, in one translation it says, like a husband loves his wife. Like a husband loves his wife. Yet the people broke covenant and went their own way. Though God loved them, God loved them with a tender love. God loved them with an everlasting love. Yet they demonstrated this persistent failure to live up to the covenant. They were not able to live up to the new covenant. So how is this covenant like the old one? Elmer Martin suggests, one, the same God takes the initiative. Two, the new covenant is based on the same law. And then three, the goal of the new covenant is the same as the old one. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we might ask, if all three of these things are the same, how is the new covenant different than the old? And in this new covenant, the answer is, God will make the people capable of obedience. We become capable by the work of God in our lives. God will change the hearts of the people. They will experience, we might say, they will experience a heart transplant done by the master surgeon, by God. A heart transplant being made capable of following the new way. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is a new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will write them on their hearts. They will be my, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, in our Western culture, the heart is the seat of emotion in the way we think of it in our terminology. It is, we might say to someone, 
special person, I love you with all my heart. But in the biblical context, the heart is the inner aspect of humanity in all its fullness, in thinking, in emotions, and in volition or the will. So in the biblical context, the heart is the, the essence of the person in not only emotions, but also in thinking and also in making a decision in, in the act of the will or in volition and saying, this is what I have decided to do. I will obey God. I have decided, as the little song, I have decided to follow Jesus. An act of volition, a, a desire that we have and a decision that we have made. A long time ago, back in the 1800s, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a story, and perhaps you read that, the story in, in high school or in junior high, wrote a story entitled The Old Stone Face. And this story tells the, the tale of Ernest, who grows up in a little village located across the valley from a magnificent visage that jutted out from the rock face on the mountains. And as a young lad, as a young lad, he listened to his mother telling a story about, uh, about this face. And this was a story that his mother had, re had received from her mother. And that someday there would be a very important person coming to the village who bore a resemblance to the expansive and the generous face on the mountain. And now Ernest, when he heard this story, he took this story very seriously, and he thought about the man who would come to their village. And the years went by, and three men came to the village, and each proclaimed that they were the one who fulfilled the prophecy of the person who would, was like the great stone face. And each time, Ernest was greatly disappointed because, indeed, each of these persons did not live up to the visage on the mountain, to that very generous face on the mountain. And he was also very disappointed that the townspeople were so gullible and would believe the message from these men. Ernest continued to mature, and Ernest became a preacher whose wisdom and perceptions about people became known far beyond the community where he lived. And one day, a poet who had heard about Ernest came to the village, and this poet was intent on meeting him. So after some wonderful conversation that the poet and Ernest had, the artist accompanied Ernest to his usual place of preaching. And this was a place outdoors where the villagers gathered to listen to his very thoughtful and perceptive remarks. And as Ernest stood in his pulpit with the great stone face behind him, 
the poet suddenly exclaimed, Behold, behold, Ernest is himself the likeness of the great stone face. So the villagers who had earlier thought that others fulfilled the prophecy now realized that indeed Ernest was the one who truly bore the image from the mountain. Ernest was less convinced, and he walked home slowly and reflectively, still hoping that some wiser and better man would by and by appear. Now, seminary professor Molly Marshall suggests that we can learn three theological lessons from Hawthorne's story. First, that transformation into the likeness of God is a lifelong process. Transformation into the likeness of God is a lifelong process. Secondly, that we must be attentive to and focus on Jesus. Focus on the great stone face. Thirdly, that great humility allows one to be receptive to the work of the Spirit as we live into the new covenant. Allows one to be receptive as we live into the new covenant. I shared with the Sunday school class that I was teaching the intergenerational class this morning that Joan Chittister, in her book on growing older, entitled The Gift of Years, suggests that older persons come in two varieties, the sour and the serene. So as we are transformed into the likeness of Christ, certainly we would desire to become the serene persons. John Wesley suggests that one will not become a saint unless one intends to become one. There's the volition, there's the will, there's the desire, there's the decision. Unless one intends to become one, one does not become a saint. Transformation into the likeness of Jesus, even as Ernest trudges home and reflects on perhaps someone else will come in the by and by. Transformation into the likeness of Jesus requires that we allow the Spirit to work in our hearts and lives and allow the Spirit to transform us into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first couple, the couple, Adam and Eve, banished from their home, banished, expelled from the garden. The Jews were carried away from their homeland and were exiled in Babylon far away from home. The Jewish people can return home to God. We too, we too, have wandered in the land of sin, wandered in the land of Babylon. We too 
can return home to experience the grace and the mercy and the love of God. So we are inviting, are invited at this time of Lent to confess our sins like David did and to give space, to give opportunity for the Spirit to work in our lives and to change us, to transform us, and to turn from sin and return home to God. Amen. May it be so. would invite you now to share in the call to confession that will be on the screen.